Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. It's a joy to have you joining us as we continue on in this series that we are in for a lot of this year, not all of this year, but a lot of this year on the Gospel of Luke. Right now, we're in a section where Jesus has already launched his public ministry, and he starts in to these just nuggets of huge radical teachings, just back to back. It's just a flood of richness in these teachings and and really um, just beautiful things we're reading. I will mention this. We don't hit all of the Gospel of Luke. We go a little bit out of order as well because we're coming up to Easter season and then we'll circle back. But we will be putting in the newsletter each week where we'll be reading uh, or studying the following Sunday for the Sundays that we are in Luke. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to get one to you. So follow that QR code, reach out. We'll help you find the version that's right for you. But I would love to invite you all to be reading along with us between stories because the richness of Jesus's word Words, uh, help to help to inform as we stop, uh, dive into any given passage, like the one we're going to do today. We don't want to miss any of the nuance or depth of this passage. It is packed. And so what I'm going to do this morning is uh, we, we kind of have to take a couple different pivots. So I, I broke us up into three movements so we knew where we were going. I was somewhat inspired by Jade's three C's last week, but I'm not cool enough to make them all start with the same letter. That was a good pastor trick last week, Jade. Did you guys notice that? Very memorable. Mine aren't like that. You don't need to remember them. It's just so you know where we're headed in this passage. The first part is that I am going to... Just unabashedly hop onto my soapbox for a minute. This portion is rated PG-13. I've emailed the parents, so it's probably just fine, but I want you guys to know in case anybody doesn't like PG-13, five minutes in the ladies' room or men's room when that happens is just fine. Um, So, soapbox moment. Then we'll go back to rated G, observations from the text. There's a lot of richness in this little passage, and we don't want to miss any of it. So we're going to make a group of observations, but then we're going to pause, and our reflection this morning is going to be to see and feel what Jesus experienced in this moment and join with him in really reveling in that. So we will notice something, and I've been, I try to do this whenever this comes up in the scripture we're diving into. If there's something that kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit, we don't avoid that. Let's ask questions of the text. Some of you who are familiar with your Bibles, and it's totally fine if you've never heard any of these stories, by the way, too, but there are four Gospels in our Holy Scriptures. Each one accounts for the earthly ministry, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as lived in the first century, so the, the accounts of his life, each from four different writers' perspectives from the stories that have been gathered and heard from the real life of Jesus during his time on earth. So these four Gospels each have a story in them of an anointing of Jesus. So sometimes it can get confusing when they don't all match, and we can kind of scratch our heads and say, how do we get to the nugget of what is going on here in this moment? So all of them do... um, They have similar elements in anointing, but the other three, the non-Luke three stories, all have some elements that make them appear significantly different. First of all, they all happen during Jesus's final visit to Jerusalem. 
All three of them focus on the extravagance of the offering. The teaching has to do with that extravagance, unlike our text here. And so um, we have the different vantage points that happen, but we, we, we are not going to try to pair these anointings with one another, all four. Um, I just, it, it's not just me. I don't, I don't think the stories um, allow for that to be what's going on here. There certainly is room in this amazing ministry of Jesus for more than one person to do an extravagant gesture such as anointing. There's room for this to have happened more than once. John's gospel says that in that anointing, it was Mary, as in the famous trio of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The, the gospel accounts knew who Mary was, so it, I also feel like we, wouldn't, we would have named her if she was this person, and this woman is not given that name. Instead, she's given a, a, a label. Um, it's also in a different spot in Jesus's ministry. All the others are at the end. We are having this toward the beginning. And the focus of this teaching that follows, which is what the accounts, all the gospel accounts are getting at, like what did Jesus teach in this, right? This is a teaching on forgiveness and, uh, not, and hospitality. It's not, that's not the focus of the other one. So we are going to take the Bible stories and allow that this is a separate event than those other ones. But I also just love the knowledge or the realization or the um, expectation even that more than one person just couldn't even hold back but anoint Jesus for what they were hearing. That's actually a beautiful thing. So we're gonna treat this Luke event as separate than the others. And here's the part where I am gonna climb up onto a soapbox for just a second. I need to do a little defending of the women in the stories in these gospels, uh, these related stories. Historically, the church has conflated some key women in the Gospels in various ways, including the Marys. Um, let me just say this. So Luke here labels this woman a sinful woman, but does not give her a name. And a couple verses later in Luke, Luke introduces us to a very important woman in the Gospel, Mary of Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, that's what she's from Magdala, right? Mary. And so what has happened through the years is that some people linked these two, even though they're separate stories, sinful woman, Mary Magdalene. And I think there's, I actually agree with most, almost all the scholars who say there's no biblical evidence to link this woman with that Mary. What do we know of that Mary? We know that she was healed of oppression by seven demons. We know she was a faithful follower of Jesus with him for long periods of his ministry faithfully. And we know that she followed Jesus all the way to the cross and sat there and stayed there till the end. We know she was there at the empty tomb. And we know that our risen Lord chose her to be the first disciple to share the good news of our risen Lord. That is a Mary who's historical. Like if I couldn't meet someone, I wanna hang out with Mary Magdalene, I really do. We're not going to allow us to conflate her. Now, as I mentioned before, John's gospel talks about that other anointing and says the other Mary, the sibling trio, famous Mary, friends of Jesus, was at that one along with, you remember them, Lazarus and Mary? Okay, anyway, that's another Mary. Mary was a common name, but I don't want us to conflate our women. What do I mean by that? It means that you've got these uh, characters, true life characters in these stories, and we don't know a ton about them, and so we sort of mush them together and make this nameless, faceless woman 
character stand in, we conflate them like mashed potatoes into different, into one just character that stands there. And that is not fair for what we know. Let them each be their own woman, even when we're not given the name, as in the case with this story. Now, this has historical precedent, just so you know. In case you're sitting here and you're like, I know I heard before that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There's a reason you did. Uh, Historically, real quick, 591 AD, Pope Gregory the Great, in a now somewhat infamous statement in a sermon, did the worst conflation and declared Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Conflated the women all together and linked them and said, and said that. And so historically the church, that was in a time when not everybody had their own Bibles to read the differences between stories. And so if you've heard that, there's a reason you've heard that. Now, people have different uh, ideas. I, I told you this was a soapbox. We're like outside of normal teaching. People have different ideas. This was a time in the church history that was very patriarchy patriarchal, and people maybe didn't know what to do with the influential role that these women had in the life and ministry of Jesus. I never met Pope Gregory, but I do know that like Pope would be a super intense ministry to be called to. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that it was like a mistake or something, but like history took it and ran with it. And I want us to be able to sit here, look at the text, do it justice and say, we will not conflate the women in these stories. And instead, we're gonna allow this woman whose name we do not get to know to be her own woman in this moment. I think Luke would be so upset if he knew that history conflated these women because Luke does a really intentional job to make sure to point out the amazing posture that Jesus held for that society in that time, the posture he held towards the women, Luke elevates that. What he's implying is, doesn't this blow your mind? And to find out the opposite had happened, I think would be really um, upsetting to Luke. So one um, commentary that I was reading said this, to include female followers, which Luke clearly does, not only in this wider circle of supporters, but even in the traveling group together with the 12 male disciples, which is what happens in eight, one through three in a couple verses, it was potentially scandalous. What Luke was writing was potentially scandalous. And here as always, Jesus seems unconcerned by what conventional society might think. That's what Luke wants to get across. Even though we don't know this woman's name, let's let her be her own woman. Here's the part where we get a little PG-13 though. We need to talk about this. We don't actually know the nature of her sin. And I want us to be careful. There are times when we can expound on things and we can look at culture and we can make jumps to try to know more, but Luke doesn't tell us the nature of her sin. And so I don't want us to go too far beyond the text and link character traits to this woman based on something that Luke does not name for us. So for Luke's point of view, this is what's most important. For Luke's point of view, here's what we do know. Her sin is publicly known. It's not like greed or tax evasion that you can hide, right? So something about it makes it publicly known and she is therefore marginalized. She's put on the outskirts. She is not welcomed into good society because of whatever this known sin is. That is what we do know. That's what Luke wants us to know. We know it because the Pharisee thought to himself in verse 39, if he were a prophet, Jesus, he would have known she's a sinner. So Simon knows it. The Pharisee knows it. Something is known and she is not welcome at this table because of it. That's what Luke wants us to know. Now, we can go a step past that. I want to, as long as we stay rooted in Luke's point, let's go a step past that though and think, what do we think we know? Many assume she's a prostitute. I actually happen to agree with it. And if she is a prostitute, 
what is it that we would want to think of her? I wanna say that we will not judge this woman's character if she was a prostitute. No one picks that line of work. No little girl or little boy for that matter is in their teenage years or their adolescence and thinks, what should it be? Should it be engineering, maybe law, maybe prostitution? Nobody's choosing this as a vocation. We have more awareness now, I think, I don't know that for sure, of what this language really means. What we're talking about, we talk about it as people being trafficked into a sex industry. Trafficked, we see that and we're like, this is egregious. This is not the fault of the victim. They didn't have that language, but let's just remember for a minute that this is not a chosen line of work. If you as a female did not have the protection of a father or a husband or a male relative, there were very few options available for you in that society. Not only that, but we know historically that some families experiencing extreme poverty would intentionally sell their little girls into the industry that still exists today of sex trafficking, what is now known as sexual, or would be then known as uh, being a sexual servant. And so I think that what's happened through time is we look at her like she's this really racy kind of person. And I think that's incredibly unfair. If this is what she's been forced into, she has not picked it. If her family sold her, I think of some of the little girls that we serve when we go to Guatemala, whose family stories match that. And it's heartbreaking. And this is something to be um, just heartbroken over her story, not look at her like a racy seductress. Previously in this chapter, just a few verses ago, Jesus, Luke tells about his amazing compassion for a widow who would have been a very vulnerable woman because her only son just died. And we know she's a widow. We know it was the only son. And Jesus has um, enormous compassion for this woman who would have been uh, due to be marginalized, right? Luke just told us about that. So we still are coming into this passion, blown away by the uh, passage with the amazing compassion of Jesus fresh in our minds. And we see this encounter from that place. So as a, as a reader, I'm still moved by that compassion. Jesus is looking beyond the known sin that the culture all sees, and he's seeing the woman. He knows her story. He knows how she got here. And he knows her heart. If her sin was sexual, I highly doubt it was voluntary. And there was a remarkable reading that I did this week that made me realize this in a way I'd never seen before. Joel Green points this out. The Bible isn't afraid to talk about sexual sin, by the way. So if we look into John, for example, when the woman's caught in the act of adultery, voluntary act, when Jesus sends her away, he says, your sins have been forgiven, now go and sin no more. At the end of this passage, Jesus doesn't say that last part. He says, your sins have been forgiven, now go in peace. Because why would you tell a woman who is stuck in a sexual slavery to sin no more when she can't not? She has no choice. So my soapbox moment is to remember that we are looking most likely at a sex trafficked woman coming to Jesus and being denied from everybody else who's at that table. And how does Jesus respond to her? Okay, I'm gonna get down off the soapbox, but I just want you guys to remember, let's not make her like a racy seductress. 
If she's a prostitute, we have compassion for this woman and her story. Okay, soapbox. I'm going to go back to rated G. Here we go. This woman deserves our compassion. We are going to make some observations through this text. We have a Pharisee. We later learn his name is Simon, another common name. But this Pharisee named Simon has invited Jesus into his home, presumably to hear more from him. I'm sure the Pharisees are a religious group who are trying hard to honor the will and the law of God. And he's probably heard some stories about this guy, Jesus, walking around doing some pretty incredible things and saying some pretty radical things. I think Simon's kind of open enough at this point to be like, I'll check him out. I want to hear for myself. So we see a little bit of the jury still out here, an openness here. And while they're at table... This woman comes to the feet of Jesus. Now, this may seem strange, but in this culture, you can, I think this would be great. I kind of want to like pick this back up. You lie at table. You can kind of like the table is low and you lounge and it's a really long event. And so she's approaching from outside coming up and the first part of Jesus she would get to in that case would be his feet. The other thing to note is homes were more open than they are now. If somebody walked up to your dinner party, you'd be like, how did you even get in? I don't even understand. But back then, there were homes, they had like um, an atrium, if they were nicer homes, was like an open place. You conducted your business, and then like the, the, the table was out near that. So in other words, the lines between private and public were a lot more blurred. Even in, even in a um, not as fancy of a home, the doors were open and you were conducting business and, and, and neighbors and people could come by. So if you have a kind of renowned guest, I'm not surprised that somebody would just come to this table. So she shows up because the lines of privacy are more blurred and this was not her very, the fact that somebody came in was not strange, but her actions were clearly bold. She's come with this ointment and she just starts weeping at his feet. She tries to dry off her tears with her hair and then kisses his feet and anoints them with this ointment. Usually you would anoint a head of somebody and in other places we actually read that that happens. But here she just, she's just anointing his, his feet. The dirty, by the way, dirty part in that world of the sandals and what's on the street, dirty. So we get a glimpse into Simon's thoughts at this point. And uh, so Luke is recording what, what Simon had thought. He didn't speak this part out loud. We see him start to close in on his decision about Jesus, his guest here. And starting in verse 39, he, Simon, said to himself, well, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this was who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, quick note, ironically, just when Simon says, well, now I know he's not a prophet because he didn't know, Jesus actually demonstrates himself to be a double prophet. I know that's not a thing, but a double prophet because he not only knows the thoughts of Simon, Simon didn't speak those out loud, but he also knows exactly who this woman is, exactly the nature of her uncleanliness he knows all of it. He knows all of it. So what does he choose to do? He chooses to say something to Simon, who is still in a posture of listening to Jesus. And he goes into this story about the two debtors that Joy read to us. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment because it might seem like a funny moment for Jesus to launch into a story 
instead of a teaching. Like, just, just teach it. What do you want to tell us, Jesus? But why stories? I'm going to uh, jump over for a minute into Matthew's gospel uh, in chapter 13, starting in verse 10, and I'm going to use uh, the Eugene Peterson's message version to tell this story. So at one point in his teaching, the disciples came up to Jesus and asked him exactly this. Like, Jesus, why do you tell stories? And I want us to hear his response. You've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there's no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. I think we see that in this this passage, right? That's why I tell stories, Jesus goes on, to create readiness, to nudge the people towards a welcome awakening. We see this, I think, rather beautifully in an Old Testament story. What we call the Old Testament, Jesus would have called the Holy Scriptures, and he knew them well. We've talked about this in the last few weeks, remember? He's, he's again and again even declaring himself to be the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament said would come in a Messiah. And so certainly Jesus knew very well the story of King David. And I promised I would keep this PG, so I'm, or even G. I'm going to go like the really skim over version. But um, out of the line of David would come a new king. That's Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. He was an amazing king. He had this incredible story. I highly suggest you read it. But at one epic moment, this beloved, victorious king, this man after God's own heart, did the most epic fail morally of of a king. Well, maybe not the most. I won't give it that label, but it was a super duper bad one, okay? So he sees this woman and he's got the right from his position of authority to say, see her, want her, have her. And that's how that goes. Well, she was married. She got pregnant. He's like, I know how to cover this up. I'm gonna invite her husband back from war. And her husband is so virtuous that he could, because then, you know, rated G, you have to make the jump. And the husband would think that he was gonna have a baby and he wouldn't, know that King David had done anything wrong. Okay, man's so virtuous, he's like, I can't do that while my brothers are out in battle. That would not be nice for me to go and have my cozy own bed. So I'm not gonna go home. And David's like, what am I gonna do now? So he sends someone to go out into battle with him and kill him. Okay, this is like, do you notice how many bad things in a row King David did in this story? Okay, so what happens? It's really hard to tell a king face to face, dude, you really messed up. You're the bad guy. Like, that's a hard position to have. So God has uh, a prophet, Nathan. Remember, prophets in the Old Testament were, for a moment, used for a purpose by God and anointed by the Spirit to say something from God to people or a person. Nathan, the prophet, goes to David, and he's like, I have a story for you. And David listens to the story, and the story was basically like, there was a guy with a lot of power and a guy without it. And the guy with power abused his power. Isn't that bad? And David's like, that guy's the worst. And then Nathan could go, you're the guy. (laughs) And you know what King David did? King David was like, I am. Just like what Jesus said could happen through story, right? David was like, I'm that guy. I can't believe I did that thing. And David's response, please read it. Psalm 51, he pours out his heart and he's like, God, I sinned before you. I messed up. I'm awful. I can't believe it. Please forgive me. I can't believe it. He accepts the conviction. He confesses to God and he's forgiven and freed. 
but he has to deal with the ramifications of his decisions, okay? All right, that's how story can go. And it's so much less like right at you, right? And so you can hear this story, not so much with Simon, I don't think, here. We don't get that sense. So the quick version of the story again, so two people have debts, 500 denarii versus 50 denarii. Both of these are big numbers, but a denarii is one day's wage. So you can imagine like 500, how are you ever gonna make that up? You need 500 days to make it up and then all that time, you're not having your own money anymore. You guys get the picture. It's basically so ridiculous to think that a, 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 somebody earning a daily wage could ever, ever, ever make up that debt. It is insurmountable. That's what that number is supposed to tell us. Simon says, rightly so, he answers the story. He's like, I guess the one who's been, the, the wording about the, the, the person who has forgiven the debt means like a graciousness. It's not just like, fine, whatever, I forget about you. There's, there's an implied graciousness in the language that is important. He graciously says, I'm gonna let you go from these debts, Mr. 50 and Mr. 500. You're both set free from these debts. And Simon says the one who's been graciously forgiven such an outrageous debt would have more extravagant affection for the creditor. And Jesus said, yes, you're right. Don't you see that that's you and her right now? But he doesn't say that part, right? But like, that's what's implied. Do you get it now? Like King David got it right away. He's like, oh, you're right. You know, she's been so forgiven. Of course, she's so extravagant in this moment. Don't you see that the action makes sense to you now? That's what he's getting at, the feeling we're supposed to get. But the folks sitting around the table with Simon, they start to grumble. They're still really caught up in the nature of this woman doing this thing and all of that. And then they get mad because they're like, who is even this person think he is forgiving sins. Like they're all, they're the open, this is what we see. They don't, we don't go on to hear that rhetorical question answered. We don't go into a teaching about that right here. We just see like, you see that open door, just like, jury is not out anymore. Verdict is in, we're done. The openness has just been closed. They cannot see how this makes sense. So the woman's actions are socially unorthodox, yes. But they seem to show this is what we, we can see in the nuance that I wanted to get at. We, they seem to show she's already received forgiveness. Forgiveness, wholeness, restoration. She's responding to what Jesus somehow has already offered her. Has she heard about it? Has she had an encounter with him before? And he's spoken to her before? We don't know. But we do see this is a response to having already received the gift of wholeness from from Jesus in, in some way that we don't get to see. She's responding to Jesus. She's not approaching him and saying like, so what's your story? Tell me what you have to offer, prophet who's going around. She's not just learning. She's responding to Jesus. It's like she's saying like, thank you for this good news. Bless you for what you've given me. I didn't deserve it, but you gave it to me anyway. I've been forgiven an insurmountable debt. That's like what the story is telling, what Jesus taught, right? In 47, verse 47, we see this because Jesus says her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. In other words, I'm not doing the forgiving now. Her, this love shows, this woman is standing in her forgiveness. This response is what it looks like to live in the forgiveness you've already received. That's what's going on here. So anyway, it's important that she's not forgiven because of her love, it's not like you loved me really well right here with your ointment and your hair, so now I will forgive you. It's not that way, and that is really important. Her, her love is the result of having experienced forgiveness. And as I sat this week, you guys, 
and I, you may have been able to tell early, and I just thought about this in terms of like the, the trafficking conversation and all this. And when I thought about the extravagance of her response that she was feeling and living in that freedom now, when I was thinking about that, I honestly, like I was just sitting at my desk and I started crying. And I don't know if you've had a good cry in a while, but I just want to remind you from recent experience, like it's messy. It's not pretty. It's not like in the movies, you know? It's goobery. It's red-nosed. It's like you just got to let it out, and you're kind of fumbly, and, and it's, a, it's a messy thing. She didn't have tissues. She uses her hair because it's what she has. She's making a mess on Jesus' feet, and she's cleaning it up, and like, this the rawness of this. This response to Jesus is raw. It's very real, and it's rich. This is rich devotion to the forgiveness received from Jesus. So this gives us, brings us to the third point. So that, that's like nuance in the text that we could have missed to know all those little, those little moments. But like, let's just step back and say like, Jesus, you're the one with the messy feet now that smell good. But like, you're the one. What did you experience in this encounter? What did that look like? He received this gift. He received it openly from this woman, and he received it as her hospitality. His response to Simon shows us that. He's, he has translated this as this woman, whose home it is not, demonstrating radical hospitality where Simon had failed to do so. Luke 7, 44 to 47. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, uh, quick pause, he's looking at the woman. He knows her, but he still is speaking to Simon. So hear these words being addressed to Simon while he's gazing with compassion at our woman. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, which, by the way, was very needed. Like, in Chicago, we take off our shoes so we don't trudge snowy stuff. But, like, in that culture, you needed to wash your feet when you came in in your sandals from the street. So, anyway, you didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. One of the um, commentaries said this, Simon's welcome to Jesus felt short of the normal social courtesies, not even like extravagant, just the normal stuff you would do. I think it's good to know culturally what may have been expected. Social courtesies of foot washing, kissing, anointing, all these would be expected and their omission looks like a deliberate social snub. Simon was not a fan of Jesus, but the woman's actions had more than made up for his discourtesy and they revealed her by contrast as the one who truly valued him. And Jesus receives that. And in this statement, her radical hospitality creates for us an implied question to Simon. How are you going to respond, Simon? How are you going to respond? So Jesus' affirmation, this is interesting, his affirmation of her status as having been forgiven, remember she's responding to already having been forgiven, his affirmation of that is in the third person. He still is talking to Simon. He's saying, Simon, she's been forgiven. Basically, what are you gonna do about it? You're the host of this table. If I'm telling you she's been made clean, what are you gonna do about it? 
What's your response? The affirmation in this moment, you guys, she knows it clearly. She's the goobery mess. She's living in it. She knows she's been forgiven. The affirmation of this publicly right now is for Simon's benefit. And the implied question is, are you ready to embrace her into the community of this table fellowship? What are you going to do about it, Simon? It's time to embrace her. The affirmation is for Simon's sake. And the expectation when somebody was made clean again by God through the ways that God makes people clean, when unclean things happen, after you've been made clean, you're welcomed back at table fellowship. What is Simon going to do about it if she's been made clean? Basically, I see this like, like Jesus is saying, like, Simon, you don't need to worry about how many denarii people have been forgiven when they're all sitting around at God's table. It's not your job to worry about the ledger anymore. This table fellowship, you guys, that Jesus is all about, we know it's turning heads left and right, but it's a radical demonstration, a living witness, a living in-person demonstration of God's true mission and vision to redeem humanity. We know that this is true. Now, the Pharisees represented a group of people who also wanted to see God's vision and mission come to pass. But I think the way that felt more comfortable for, that, for them would be that that redemption would look like stricter boundary lines so they knew who had and hadn't crossed. It looked like making us safe with some real strengthening of boundaries for insider versus out, clean and unclean, righteous sinner. He really wants to be a good good religious person and Jesus is demonstrating something that's like let your mind be blown good religious person that's not the system I'm going to use how do we know this Jesus says very plainly Mark 217 it's not the sick who need a doctor it's the health I'm sorry (laughs) that was opposite I'm gonna do that again it's the sick who need a doctor not the healthy who do you think I've come for that last part's my paraphrase When Simon Peter, who becomes, uh, if you guys were here last spring, you know about Peter from the beginning of the book of Acts, right? Really amazing guy. But when Jesus first approaches him and performs this miracle to let him know that he should come and follow him, there's like abundance of fish when he's having a failed fishing day. Simon Peter's first response back to Jesus was, go away from me, I am a sinner. He, like, he can feel his own weight of his unworthiness, and he just says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And what does Jesus say? Come on, come on, I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. That's Jesus' response when Simon knows he's a sinner. Matthew, tax collector, you didn't have to confess it. Everybody knew you were sinning against your own people. It's right up there. If you guys have ever read the Gospels, like sinners and tax collectors, it's like a twofer. They go together all the time. Matthew's one of them. And Jesus says, come, follow me. He knows. Luke 15, too. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Table fellowship. He's blowing up the way things are going and people are really getting flustered. Luke 7, 33. This man is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We don't know what to do with this. So Jesus again and again is calling sinners. He's saying, this is exactly who I'm here for. Come on, follow me. So he wants the sinners to join in the prophetic program of restoring people into healing communities. See, that's the thing. It's not just for the individual. It's for restoration into healing communities so that you're not just made clean for you, but you're restored to what God's uh, vision for this community should be. That's radical hospitality. Way beyond religious rules that would firm up boundaries, right? And I just see the implied conversation here for Jesus, and my heart goes something like this, just saying like, Simon, 
Don't you know her sins have been forgiven? She responds to me in extravagant hospitality that you didn't even offer, and you're supposed to be the righteous one. But you didn't even offer it. She did. Hey, Simon, if I cancel all debts, can you open the table? I already did the canceling. Your job is to open back up the table. Can you do it, or do you have to keep counting denarii? If God has cleaned a ledger, are you secretly going to keep one for yourself before you let people come back to the community of God? Don't do it, Simon. Don't do it, Pharisees. Don't do it, church. We're not asked to do that thing. Luke doesn't record Simon's answer. He's as if Luke is implying to ask the same question to us as his readers now. What do we say if Luke says the same to us? Joel Green says this, it's one thing to have Jesus proclaim her forgiveness in order that her renewed status might be recognized by the community. It's quite another for that community actually to accept his pronouncement and to extend kinship. I love that word. Kinship to her, not just like, oh, okay, you can be here, but kinship to her. It's a beautiful thing. And the implied question is, how will they respond? We don't actually know. Luke doesn't tell us. How will Simon respond? And how will Luke's readers respond? How will we respond? Because here's the truth in a moment like this. And I hope that some of our conversation reminds us that these encounters, like they can be a little gritty and real and messy, right? So how do we respond? It might mean social discomfort. Like if you imagine if those Pharisees were like, yes, we respond and opened up a place, like, like there'd be some real social This is, I don't know how to do it. Like there would be social discomfort. And you know what? That's okay. You know what else there would be? There'd probably be some messy, goobery tears. And that's okay. There probably will be messy places, hard places. Like that's what happens if we respond to this. It probably means for many of us responding, going out. Because the truth is, you guys, for many people like this unnamed woman, it's really, really hard to come in here. That's just a truth that we have to know. So what does it mean to respond so extravagantly that we could go out rather than just responding when somebody is brave enough to walk through these doors who might feel like her? This is not like an open atrium. Why we want it to be though, right? So we can posture ourselves in here and we can posture ourselves out in this world to remember what this might feel like if we respond to Luke's implied question. How will we respond? I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, I just thank you for the grittiness of this scene. I thank you for your ability to look and see the woman who Luke didn't name, but that's okay because the things that he wanted us to know about her, you revealed. Thank you for her glorious, extravagant hospitality. May we learn from her today. May we learn about such rich and raw and real devotion to you. Jesus, sometimes um, a call to this kind of radical hospitality might mean going out. Would you make us brave and committed and open and Holy Spirit in ways that I don't have words for because I don't know yet what that might look like, but just help us to be open to you. And for some of us here, it might just mean that we needed to hear some words about who you are, Jesus, that this kind of radical insurmountable debt cancellation is something that you so lovingly give. 
And so if that's you today, I just pray that you would allow these words to stir your heart to know more about Jesus, to maybe consider what it looks like to say, I accept this good news that you're trying to give me. If that's you, we encourage you, come, come find us after service. We can talk more. Um, but for the rest of us too, I just want to say, like, Jesus, Jesus, give us ears to hear and a heart that's open to respond how you want us to respond to this amazing encounter today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.